I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. All right, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by ourselves. Yes, that's right, ourselves. Uh, it's brought to you by our Fried Egg Pro Shop. If you guys uh, enjoy the podcast and are looking for any type of new golf gear, loungewear, new print for your office, go to the Fried Egg Pro Shop. You guys, uh, proshop.thefriedegg.com. Uh, we've got a pretty wide selection right now. We've got polos, we've got hoodies, we've got, I think we've got crew necks. Yeah, we have crew necks, we have t-shirts, a wide array of things, uh, probably about 70 different courses in our print store. So if you're looking for something to spruce up your home or office, go check it out there. That's proshop.thefriedag.com. And thank you for listening. Today's episode will be a mailbag podcast. I've got Garrett Morrison right here. What's up? How's it going? Ad read right off the top. Yeah. Moving merch. Moving merch. <laughs> Moving merch, talking golf architecture uh, on a long road trip. So this should be a fun one. I'm uh, I'm excited to talk about something other than professional golf. It's kind of been <laughs> um, occupying the vacuum in the golf world. And uh, it'll be a nice uh, change of pace here to talk golf architecture. Uh, how's the trip been for you? What Have you enjoyed your jaunt through the uh, Northeast here. This has been an incredible trip. For people who don't know, we started in Boston at an event that we held called the Backyard at Essex County Club, which was sensational. That course immediately goes into the top bucket for me. I mean, just an incredible golf course. Um, we've gotten to play some other cool courses in the area as well. As we were driving up to Rochester, which is where we are right now, which, by the way, is not particularly near Boston. But in the midst of our drive up, we stopped at a, an incredible place called the Country Club of Troy, which I admit I had never heard of before. But it's a Walter Travis course outside of Albany, and it's just really wonderful. And I think that course is going to stick with me for a long time. So uh, this trip has been really invigorating in some ways in terms of the golf course part of it and really tiring in other ways because we've had we've had long days we've been recording podcasts we've been going to courses but uh everything we're doing we're, we're super super lucky to do um but we are uh, starting to run on fumes here yeah. um so thank you to everybody for sending in questions because that really helps us kind of generate a podcast out of nothing uh that's what these mailbag pods are all about yeah yeah it's uh it's most of the teams on the road so uh, putting together a podcast and getting it out there and it's it, it's uh lots of good questions so uh do you have uh this is actually a great question off the top we've seen a lot of blind tee shots and one of the reasons we had a golf course set up uh you know situation at, at our last event was blamed by you guys on not having a bell or something but blind tee shots what's the best method for safety bells periscopes nothing at all I think there's a wide array of this. 
<laughs> I mean, one of my favorite things is when there's like a, a homemade Periscope. I love the Periscope. Well, at Dun- at, uh, at, not Dunbar, at Ely. There's a oh, there's yeah. like a real like submarine right? periscope for the first tee shot. That's so cool. I think periscope is by far the best method because then the you bells. can actually see people. You, you then you're you're respond you you the person who is hitting the tee shot becomes responsible for knowing whether yes. you're hitting some, into somebody. And because the problem with the bell is that somebody might not ring it. That's exactly right. You can't really know, and you have to listen for it. You don't yeah. you don't have any control. Yeah, exactly. So periscope by far. The best uh, method of safety. And I think it's cool. I think it looks cool. Somebody's going to say that's so silly. One of my favorite periscopes is at Spring Valley, uh, like a $20 course north of Chicago, kind of on the Chicago, Illinois border. It's in Wisconsin, or Chicago, Illinois, Wisconsin border. Uh, Wisconsinites <laughs> are going to get after me. Some people in Southern <laughs> Illinois might agree that there's a border there. But uh, it's in Wisconsin. Uh, but people, but there's a like a PVC pipe periscope. I don't know exactly how they how you would make a periscope, how you'd fashion it, but I think that's the right answer. You know where there's a periscope is the mines. Yeah, right. There's a periscope at the mines, and it was a fun thing. The mines is where we held a joint event with No Laying Up this year called the Thirst Buckets, a great public course outside of Grand Rapids, and they have a, pub, a periscope on one blind tee shot. I think it's whole. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what hole it is, but um, it's it's really cool. It's like a fun thing that you can do during the round. The bell, though, if you got rid of all the bells, what would the content makers do? Yeah, I mean, what what would people do? You can't ring the bell. How do you fill those shots? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All right. uh, Want another question? Yeah. All right. This one is from Keith Robel. Um, He asks, are we finally seeing a next generation of architects getting new build work that seems relevant compared to the big four. And by the big four, I assume he means Corin Crenshaw, Tom Doak, and Renaissance Golf Design, um, David McClay Kidd, and Gil Hance. That's the yeah. big four? I, th- I think so. And I, I obviously, I think it's important to be, to, to know like Fazio still gets lots of jobs. That's exactly what I was going to say. So. If you look at what's actually going on as opposed to what gets covered in, you know, alternative golf media or even in mainstream golf media, Fazio, Nicholas, all these architects who have been around for a while, still getting a lot of work. Your local, your regional ASGCA architect is getting a lot of work right now. Yeah. And so it's not just those four architects getting getting the work. But I think what Keith is asking yeah. is among the crew of kind of exciting young architects who seems to be primed to break out, who would you be excited to see break out? I guess that that kind of discussion yeah i i think it's been um this is such a hard question so many people ask me about like who's the next guy who's the or girl what's the who's the up-and-coming architect and one of the tricky things is like we've seen the young architects do restoration work for the most part renovation work restoration work of existing courses and you know, Rob Collins has built now two courses and nine or, or three courses, two nine hole courses and an 18 hole course. I haven't gone seen the finished product at Landman. I've seen Sweden's Cove. I haven't seen Innes. You know, he's he's one that has multiple courses like he, you're starting to see you you actually have a body of work to go look at. Right. Um, a lot of these guys haven't built 
even their first solo design. And I think restoring and renovating courses is a lot different than building a golf course from scratch. There are substantially more decisions and substantially more work. Is it sexy work? Is it, you know, sitting in a chair, you know, talking through the strategy of a whole? No, it's like permitting. It's it's construction. It's all the little things that make your client happy and have a project run on time, run smoothly. Like one of the things that Bill and Ben, Tom and Gil and David all do extraordinarily well because they've had so many chances is the little things and, and run, you know, building a golf course. So I think, you know, obviously on the short list, you have like Kyle Franz, I know has a few solo designs in the works. Um, that that's exciting. You have, um, you know, Keith Reb and Riley Johns. Those are exciting guys. Rob and Tad. I think Rob and Tad, they're doing brash stuff, right? They are doing stuff that is different than what Gil, Tom, and Bill and Ben are doing. They are, they're pushing the limit in their own way, which I really appreciate. They're doing it their way, you know? Um, you know, it's, it's moving earth and creating. It's not building on the land. They're, they're not really in the Corin Crenshaw tradition. Maybe they would disagree with me about that. I'm sure they've taken some inspiration from the Corin Crenshaws and, and the Tom Dokes. But, you know, what's really exciting about King Collins is that they're coming from a different lineage, you know, uh, working for Fazio and uh, being inspired by Mike Strantz, things like that. It's a, it's a style of architecture that uh, people who really are into architecture, are architecture nuts, haven't been obsessed with, I think, for a while. So some other young architects who might be excited to see break out, uh, young I'm, I'm using in relative terms for golf architects. Young, I mean, just like maybe younger than 50 or 60, but Brian Schneider. Yes, Blake I was going to say Brian Schneider. Yeah, and Brian Schneider and Blake Conant currently... Uh, building a course called Old Barnwell near Aiken that looks like it could be pretty exciting. And like, so this is a perfect example, right? We we saw them, you know, they've done, Brian's done so much restoration work. He's done so much new build with Tom. And, you know, he did, it, Brian and Blake, Brian as the lead designer, re renovated Lanark. Really cool renovation. And now they're doing a new build. Like you're going to begin to see Brian Schneider original work. You know, he's, he's done so much, you know, a lot of the work he does for Tom is, is, you know, a lot of it is his work, but it's, you know, under the vein of Tom's routing, he's doing this all on his own. You know, that's the exciting thing, right? Is seeing these guys kind of get a chance. Um, and, and that's the big thing. There's enough work going around where finally, where, the big names don't take all of the really exciting new projects, right? They're, they have, they can't take on more work, if that makes sense. And like, I, I didn't list off a ton, but like, it, it goes down to people doing, you know, getting bigger restoration and renovation jobs too, right? It's just building that momentum um, towards, I think we're getting, the, we're getting to where we'll see younger guys getting jobs over some of the 
some of the you know not old guard they aren't old you know some of the some of the we've been familiar with yeah getting those jobs at the big resorts and stuff like that and sometimes it just takes one course oh yeah one great mike cocking and mike cocking and uh, ashley mead and jeff ogilvy would be uh, ones to watch and they're uh they've got something in minnesota i believe and georgia that's yeah right coming up in the next uh couple years (laughs) should we mention that or not (laughs) um okay in any case, uh, we're going on to another question. Do you have one queued up there? Um, I don't have one right now. All right, here, one. On, uh, I'll, I'll throw you one. Um, how can a lame? This is from Ryan Silhavi, Ryan Silavi, one of those. How can a layman tell that a course architecture faux pas has taken place? Example given: shrunken green. How can I tell that this is happening? So why don't we like start with his example? How can you tell that a, that a shrunken green on an older course is actually shrunken? Because this is something that people often, even people who are really familiar with their course, might not really notice, and understandably so, because they're used to the green being whatever the current green shape is. So how can you tell that something is smaller than it should be or than it used to be? Yeah, I think the, the big thing with that is looking at the the landform right yes um and what was constructed so if you have bunkers around a green you'll usually have shaping with a bunker and then that will tie into the green and if you see you know the face and then there's a lot of rough a lot of times that's a telltale sign um now some architects built bunkers off of greens this isn't always just right but the big thing, especially especially if you go around your course and you see like a consistent, you know, especially say a Donald Ross course, right? You'll see a lot of times backs of greens built up. Now, those backs of greens are built up and the green would push to the edges of, of that build is, is the way they were when they opened, Right. So if you see that the backs of the green and then the, along the sides are kind of built up and there's rough, um, you know, I don't know many architects just in general, generally speaking, that built like circular greens. And that's like a telltale sign. Like that's the number one telltale sign. Like not a lot of architects built just circle greens, right? If you think of the way a, a water sprinkler you know, works in your yard, you start to realize why something might become a circle, right? It goes around in a circle. And also from a mowing standpoint, mowing a circle is easier than mowing a square. It's just over time, the evolution of the green shape is going to come in a little bit and you won't, you know, the green keepers won't notice it. Like it's so easy. Like think about you're mowing your lawn, but these people are mowing their these greens and they're trying to be super precise a lot of times when it's dark and how easy it is to miss a corner by a couple inches or you know in some cases you need to save money how do you do that let's cut down on how often we mow like you know there are all these little things but over time especially especially in in the southeast where you've got the bermuda grass like you've got this you know it's so easy to miss a corner, have that grow up, and then the, the next time you go around, you just don't think that's part of the green. 
the other thing you can look at is is sprinkler heads. Um, that's a good sign. But a lot of times sprinkler so sprinkler heads have a lifespan of like thirty years, and uh, look at them, see if they're new, see if they're old. If they're older, that'll give you an idea. Like so, if if they're older and they're thirty years old, right? You'll see where kind of the greens were thirty years ago. Now those are probably still smaller than they should be, right? It's a it's a tricky thing, like you know, and and if you want to get more into it, but if you're just looking at it, I think like looking at like how the greens built, how it's shaped, right? Yeah, especially on older courses, look for where the green pad is. There's usually some kind of green pad, some kind of build. And if the green's not out to the edge of that, then it's probably a little bit too small. And then with like fairways and stuff, I would I would start to look at like bunkers. Yes. Where are the bunkers? Are they lost in the rough? Fairway should usually be right out to the bunker. Yeah. Either the inside, in like either the, at least the inside edge of them. I don't know many architects that are just like putting bunkers out in season of rough. Like maybe some might go inside edge. Maybe some might go middle. Like, you know, there's all different. It's it's always it's really tricky to tie in a bunker to a fairway. Do you go all the way out to the wide? Like, I prefer wide in and out lines, but others prefer other things. So you yeah. Know. All right. So those are some nuts and bolts for people. Maybe maybe your home course. Maybe you're looking for this kind of stuff. Um, that'll uh, maybe uh, that maybe that'll help. But it's it's kind of a complicated thing. The key is just going to see like a well restored course. And then comparing it to other courses. Um, all right. Question from Shane Bacon. <laughs> what is the perfect restribution? <laughs> restribution. What is the perfect restroom distribution on a golf course? What holes? Multiple? <laughs> um. I mean, first of all, two dudes should not be answering this question. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 think, I think every... Every six holes seems like probably the right amount, right? I, I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking about it, three restrooms. But also, like, just put them, they need to be located at gathering points where there's, like, multiple different tees and greens. If the golf course has that, that's probably where the restroom should be, right? So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. That's that's enough. On that <laughs> that's enough on, we, thank you for your question, Shane. Um, um, here's, <laughs> let's get another one. Here's a... Biggie, what's your favorite green template on a par three or short course? Are these green templates more fun when you're hitting wedges opposed to long irons in? Oh man, I, I, I guess that's a that's a good question. I mean, there but there are some templates like the Beeritz that are more fun when you're when you aren't hitting a short club, right? The Beeritz is fun. Like if I you think can... the Beeritz is a better green now for par fives than it is for par threes because like you have to have the par three be like 270 to have a long hitter running it in like a reachable par five situation yeah hitting a three wood in Mm -hmm. because then it it actually you know the one at meadowbrook uh which we have had an event at the last two years is andy staples redesign it's a reachable par five and it plays uphill. Yeah, it's cool. So, yeah, so that's like really, even really cool. long long hitters are hitting uphill, so your shots naturally coming in flatter and running. Yeah, 
Um, yeah. I don't. We, think we, we should probably tell people what a Biarritz is. It, yeah. it's, that, it's that green. It's a long green with a big trough running perpendicular to the line of play, kind of through the middle. And the idea of the hole is that you're hitting a long club. You kind of run your ball through the uh, through the trough to the other side. Um, so other other templates. I, I don't know. What what do you think? Like, I, I'd love to see on a short course like a double plateau type green or a maiden type green. These are both greens that have like shelves, multiple shelves on different in different corners of the green, and then kind of this you know gully running through them in various different arrangements i think that's a cool template quote unquote for a short par three because you can find a bunch of different pins and the the difference between a really good shot and just a good shot is is pretty stark yeah i think just in general greens that have a, a lot of different options and options get thrown too much around. But like the way to think about it is really tough positions and really gettable positions and something in between. I think something for a, for a par three, a short par three, particularly. If you have a middle pin, if you can put the pin right in the middle and you think, wow, that's a great pin. It's usually a really great green, like at the bare minimum, like it, and, and that goes for any green. Like when you just throw the pin right in the smack dab in the middle of the green and you're like, oh, wow, this is a pretty cool pin. That's usually a great, great green because that means there's a lot going on. Right. It's not just a pancake. Yeah. All right. Continuing on the theme of greens, Preston Walford asks, a lot of us know a great set of greens when we play them but struggle to explain to the uninitiated what makes some greens better than others. Most people I play with grade greens strictly on conditioning. What would be some things to look out for when assessing a course's greens? So we actually just recorded a video, a little preview of, of some future content, recorded a video about Cape Arundel where we kind of addressed this question of what makes a great green, what makes a great set of greens, but just to break it down in really simple terms what are what do you think are some criteria what are some like simple things that people can look for when they see their courses greens yeah i i think variety is right at the top um so different shapes different orientation and what i mean by orientation is how does the green sit like what angle does the green sit that it asked you to be at going back so you know do d certain shots open and, and with greens you know i'm talking about the bunkers and the surrounds right if every green is like bunker right bunker left and it's straight on you know that's not very interesting right you're 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 kind of it's kind of asking you to do the same thing but if you can open you know one way with a hard angle so that it's like oh wow it's really advantageous if i'm over here on the right like a, a great way to, you know, look at greens is to go backwards. Um, if you look at them from behind them and, and kind of look back, it's like, okay, if the pin's over here, I want to be over here. It would be easier to hit a shot in from here. And when you're behind the green, it's really easy to tell this stuff. Or if you take a photo from behind the green, right? Um, so I think the big thing for me with greens is variety. You don't want all of them to be back to front. You don't want all of them to have, you don't want all of them to be 
the craziest screen you've ever seen. That's right. You don't want all of them to, to be huge. Yeah. Right. Because you want like you want some subtle ones. I think like one of the things I've I've thought about a lot in and I think um you know Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw are I think among the best to ever do it. And one of the things I always am, you know, kind of walk away with their courses from is like I say, God, that's such a cool green so often. And I can count on one hand how many times I've looked at a green and been like, wow, that that might be a little too much, right? Like they have such confidence. And one of the things that the confidence does is that those guys aren't afraid to build a really simple green. And I I used to think that confidence was building something bold and something big with crazy, uh, you know, crazy, you know, undulations in it. But now the more I've thought about it, the more I've seen, I think that the really great architects have the confidence to build something so subtle and simple and know that it's great, right? It's a, it's a pretty tame green with one feature, you know, it doesn't have 17 little pockets and it's this combined with this, with this, it's just, oh, this is a cool green site. You know, you have to play up to this rise and we're just going to put a little, little bump in this spot and it's going to impact every single pin on the green. Yeah. Great does not necessarily mean wild. So, so with that, like a mixture of those types of greens with some other greens, like where, where you need to spice up a hole, they all relate back to the hole. Right. And you know, if, if the course is a little bit flatter, then you might see a little bit more juice in the greens, right? If the course has a little bit more going on in the land, then sometimes like subtle greens are the right thing because you're doing so much to get to the green, right? And I think that's the thing is they, they, it's hard to like say this is the, you know, the greens relate to the site because if the site is big and bold and, and has a ton of movement, you know, the greens, it's okay to have a little bit more quiet greens there because, you know, everything else is, you know, getting you there. But if the, if the land's pretty flat and everything, you have to do stuff at the green in order to create the interest back. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, variety is 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 the watchword. And I think variety also applies to pin positions on greens. Right. So a good set of greens, sometimes they'll be simple. Sometimes they'll be small. Maybe there won't be many pin positions on those greens, but there need to be some greens on the course where you can find different pin positions in different sections of the greens that are meaningful for the strategy of the hole that change something about how you ideally want to play the hole, right? So I think a variety of pin positions on an individual green is a really important thing to look for. If you look at a set of 18 greens and you see a bunch of greens where you can't really put the pin in a bunch of different places or where if you're putting the pin in different places, it doesn't really change anything about the way you attack the hole, then you might be dealing with a set of greens that's a bit too simplistic to be interesting over the long haul. So I think this idea of standing behind a green and looking back at the hole, looking how looking at how it relates to the way the hole is played is the most important concept here. So if you're trying to 
introduce somebody to how greens are designed or if somebody's curious about that, then taking them behind a green, looking at it as it relates to the whole and talking about how different areas of the green might be pinned and how that might change things. I think that's the most impactful discussion that you can have with somebody. But I would definitely advise making sure that that person wants to hear what you're talking about because just spouting off about golf architecture at somebody can sometimes not have the intended effect, which leads me to this next question that I'm curious to hear your reaction to from Jason Shanahan. Really good question. How do you balance talking course architecture with people who really don't care without sounding like a pompous ass? Well, first of all, I'd suggest not talking to people about it who don't care about golf art course architecture, who don't like it, you know, just, you know, talk about movies or talk about the bears or or something else. Second of all, I would suggest that asking us how not to sound like a pompous ass, some people would say that we are not the people to ask about that. But that said, um, do you have a response to this question? I I talk with a lot of people about golf and, and, you know, golf courses and, like, I mean, the biggest thing I think is just listen to people. Like, I, I, here's the thing I always think about. Golf courses to me are a lot like restaurants, okay? Everybody has different tastes. And if everybody had the same taste, life would be pretty fucking boring, right? Like, so if I like one thing, if I like this restaurant and... You know, my wife likes the other restaurant and doesn't like that one. Like, I don't get like all snooty about it. I just say, that's weird. You know, I like that place. <laughs> so like, why don't you <laughs> apply the same thing? Right. And and like, I, I'm fine giving my opinion on places. And I think this is an important like what what I say, what you say, what Tom Doak says, what, you know, Reese Jones says what it's all just an opinion. That's the beautiful thing about about it. It's art. It's it's to be judged. It's you know, you know, it's not everybody likes it. It makes different people feel different ways. So I think the number one thing is just understanding that it's okay if somebody has a different opinion than you and it's okay if somebody likes a said course. You know, in a lot of people, it's a hard thing to express why you like a course. I like to understand why I like a course. And I like to think about a golf course in a way that a lot of people don't think about courses. And that's, you know, everybody plays golf for different reasons. And that's the beauty of the game. So that's what I would say. It's like, if golf architecture is your thing, if you're listening to this podcast, it probably is. Then like, yeah, that's cool. That's my thing. Like, I, I've spent a lot of time with Garrett. Garrett's like a, a kind of a closet gearhead. I'm not. So, so, but, oh, come but on. Like I, when Garrett starts picking up putters and fiddling around with them and talking about things, I don't, you know, I don't roll my eyes. I just listen to it and I might pick something up, you know? Oh, no. And I think that's the other thing is like, I, I always approach caddying this way. And I when I was like, I was in high school, I was a high school golfer. I was playing AJGA tournaments. I was better than almost everybody that I caddied for. But, you know, you can't go in there with that mentality. You can't carry somebody's bag every day for 18 holes knowing you're better than them and have that attitude of like, 
I know more than about golf than you and be a good caddy, right? The way I used to approach caddying was, listen, like, I know I know way more about golf than this person, and I know I can tell them the shot they should hit, and they aren't going to listen to me. If I do, I'm not going to do that, but something that this person says will probably help me understand the game of golf more because they might just understand something that I don't. And some, it's the same thing with courses, right? Like somebody could love Reese Jones' work and say something that I've never thought of, right? I'm not a big Reese Jones fan, right? So that's that's kind of my thing. It's just understanding that like different different opinions, like I, and maybe this is just life advice, right? It's like different opinions. It's it's okay. It's not the end of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 knowing that everybody has something of value to contribute to any subject, even if it's a subject you know a lot about and that the other person might just be getting into. Sometimes that can be a really interesting conversation. Like I'm always fascinated to hear what my wife has to say about golf courses, whether we're at a golf course or we see one on TV, her reaction, it might not necessarily be my reaction. She might not be noticing things that I usually notice, but it, it's it's interesting to me to hear what she has to say, and it kind of gets me out of my bubble a little bit to hear that. At the same time, can I reframe this a little bit? Because I think it's I think you have to do something more than say everybody has a different opinion and that's okay. I think that's that's important. It's important to say that, but sometimes that's not quite enough. And the times when that's not quite enough is when say you're in a club or say you're just a member at a public course or something, and the membership is having a discussion or a debate about what to do with the course, whether to change a certain hole, whether to restore something, whether to remove trees. All of these questions confront courses and clubs on a daily basis, and members have to debate with each other and figure out what to do, right? And so in that situation, saying... Oh, everybody has their own opinion and that's okay. Uh, suddenly that doesn't quite work. And so how in that situation do you go about being a golf architecture nut, loving classic golf architecture and not coming off as a jerk, you know? And I think that that just to me it just comes down to persuasion right and, yeah and, it's, it's and, not you know, ostracizing you have, be, you have to be subtle about it right yeah. you have to like exercise some social graces in, in going about it yeah i've had a club with way too many trees and at one point in my life and i i you know i was young i was in my 20s and i like went about it way the wrong way like i got so many people like uh, what's this guy just hollering about trees you know, you have to have some tact and <laughs> some patience and and um and that's i mean it's hard it's like anything in life, you have to be diplomatic. But I think the big thing is like show, showing why, you know, this was the way it was if you're restoring something. Or I think a, a really good way to do it is to ask people what their favorite courses are. And a, a lot of times like that will and you, you can glean something from that. Right. And be like, hey, like you know, you said you like so-and-so course. Well, like, oh, you say you like your courses abandoned. Do they have a ton of trees? And like, it seems like they, 
afford a lot of space off the play, off the tee. That might be why you like them is that, you know, you can get your ball out there and then you have a lot of different options on how you can hit into the green and you can play up the left or you can play up the right because there's enough space to do so, you know? So that's like a, a, a way to do it, right? Is to kind of ask them questions and then work off that and make them almost, you know, it's like an old sales trick, like make, make somebody think it's their idea. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Right. And that is the most effective way to persuade somebody of something is to make them feel like it's in their interest or that it was even their idea to do something. And, and my, my belief is that most golfers kind of have fun with similar kinds of golf architecture. I, I don't believe that most golfers have a lot of fun playing super narrow, hard, tree-lined courses with a lot of rough. Now, some golfers do enjoy that. I don't want to take anything away from that. But I would just hazard a guess that most golfers like something other than that. And so, you know, we can eventually get to that conclusion together but we just have to like not yell at each other about it first and and have each side kind of dig in and and start making it about pride. I've got a question for Go you for that is going to be hard for you not to sound like a pompous ass. Oh god. Uh from Par Birdie Birdie. Oh no. Which person has done the most damage to golf architecture? <laughs> a. RTJ Jr. B. Dick Nugent. C. Jack, Jack Nicklaus or D. Reese Jones. You bastard. <laughs> Okay, listen, Par Birdie Birdie asked uh, actually a few questions, and all of them were pretty pointed. Um, so Par Birdie Birdie, hope, hope you're doing okay. It, it seems like something is bothering you, um, at, perhaps at your club. Um, but in any case, uh, of those, God, I don't know. I mean, Reese Jones is really has really uh <laughs> wreaked some havoc at uh at a lot of uh he's really not, really good as courses as jack though yeah i mean i i think ultimately you'd have to go with jack nicholas there and okay here here's here's why i'm saying jack nicholas it's not because i think that he's a clueless architect or that his best courses are bad i think actually the best jack nicholas courses are really good and some of them are really great places to hold pro tournaments. Muirfield Village being one of them. I've been more or less persuaded of this by Joseph Lamagna, but Muirfield Village is a terrific PGA Tour venue. And Jack Nicholas clearly knows how to build that kind of course and, and make it interesting, make it challenging. And so the best Jack Nicholas courses are really good. I'm not saying Jack Nicholas is some kind of golf architecture idiot. But the, the, the problem starts with the factory model of Jack Nicholas designs and how many courses were built with the Jack Nicholas name on them that didn't necessarily have much input from Jack Nicholas, didn't necessarily represent much passion on his part in building them, creating them. And I think that that ultimately is the thing that gets golf architects in the end is the not paying attention to individual projects. Once they get too much work, once they're stretched too thin, once they stop caring about the course that they're building, like it's life or death, then you start getting mediocre work. And that is, I think, the big problem that affects golf architecture, especially in boom times like we're having right now. So I think a question that 
all architects in this current kind of active moment in golf course development need to ask themselves is how much work can I really take on and remain passionate about each individual project? So I'm choosing Jack Nicholas because there are just way too many Jack Nicholas courses for him to have really cared about all of them. I, and I, I asked the question, so I didn't have to answer it. <laughs> so you've just, you've just hung me out to dry. <laughs> yeah. Like you've just completely abandoned me. Just like, just like Tally. On towel. my Jack Nicholas hating hill. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. All right. Um, question from Cheesehead Sportsnut. Great, great name. Oh, uh, yeah. Wisconsin sports suck. <laughs> and that's your hill. All right. Cheesehead Sportsnut. Cheesehead. The Lido seems like a true golf course architecture modern marvel on a number of levels. Do you see that being a total one-off or paving the way for other lost courses to be rebuilt? Okay, so some context. I mean, probably just about everybody listening to this knows this, but um, Tom Doak and his team are rebuilding C.B. McDonald's lost Lido Golf Club in the middle of Wisconsin, near the Sand Valley uh, Golf Resort. And they are using kind of uh, some innovative methods to really recreate exactly what that course might have been at the ground level. Um, so that's the project that Cheesehead Sportsnet is referring to and asking whether that's just one thing that'll happen one time or whether it's going to open up a new kind of possibility in golf course architecture. Uh, what do you think about that, Andy? Um, I'm, I'm really excited about seeing the Lido. Um, I don't know how many Lido type projects I want to see. I don't like the idea of getting in the habit of copying holes straight, straight up. I don't like, you know, in this case, the Lido was considered by some the greatest course of its era and it's gone. And I think it's very important to use this type of technology in that vein. Am I bringing something back that was truly the best course or one of the five best courses and it's gone. And I can't think of many courses that are in that type of vein as the Lido. So with that said, I would hate to see people start to use this technology to recreate holes at other golf courses because why not hire a talented architect and let them build stuff on their own why like who would want the you know in their heyday who would want the rolling stones to try and be the beatles it's silly right what higher push the the practice of golf architecture into the future not live in the past right like use the principles of those great courses to build new stuff and and you know tweak it don't just copy what happened like that that's just replica art and that's not good. Um, so I think like there, there's some of this with like the Rainer McDonald stuff and, and I'm, I'm a huge Rainer McDonald fan, but there can be twists to those templates and those templates were, were, you know, there are a lot of differences in the templates at different courses, right? It's great to have, but like building straight up a template course, like 
I think it's great to give architects the chance to build what they want to build, you know? Yeah, create something new. Think about hiring a great artist and like telling them what to paint. Yeah, yeah, or, or having them paint according to kind of like a machine learning adaptation of uh, Michelangelo or something. Yeah. You know, like that. that so <laughs> the Lido is one of one. The original Lido, the CB McDonald Lido, there was no other golf course like that golf course. Not one. And so I think that this project of recreating the Lido should similarly be unique because the Lido was unique. So it, it, it justifies this project and the methods that they used to recreate the course. But golf architecture has to move forward, right? Once we start using new technology to recreate lost courses, our reverence for golden age golf course architecture has gone way too far. We're going to start living in this kind of nostalgia, right? Instead of pushing forward, finding new things, using old ideas and spinning them in some way to create something new. That's what art has to do in order to remain alive. So honestly, using this technology that they've used at the new Lido in, in Wisconsin to do other golf course projects, I think is would, would pose a major threat to the art of golf course design. And I really, really hope that people don't do it. <laughs> like <laughs> I think it's I think that would be a very, very bad thing. So if you're thinking about doing it, please don't. <laughs> um, all right, moving on. Yeah. All right. Uh, we probably have time for for one or two more questions here. Um, here's an interesting one from uh, Andy Lack, a fellow oh, podcaster. This is a good question. What's that? This was a good question. A really good question. If a new architect came to you and said, "I can go anywhere in the world to study one course before I build mine," where would you send him? So I think this question, part of its premise is that, you know, the land, of course, we would advise the architect to go find us a, a course built on a similar piece of land and kind of study that like the greatest course built on X piece of land, study that that would probably be the real move. But let's just think, you know, in general, what would be the greatest place to learn how to do golf course architecture? Oh, that's a great question. I th I personally, I think a lot of golf course construction and um, golf architecture, golf courses are are very um, socially irresponsible in terms of their waste and their opulence. So, to me, if I was going to send somebody who was thinking about building a golf course to a course. I would send them to Sand Hills because there is, you know, you have a masterpiece of of golf design and also it shows that everything doesn't need to be over the top to be a great place and a great place to hang out. Like you know, you're building these courses and and really you're building a a golf course. So the, everything should be centered around the golf course. Like everything else like it's nice to have nice stuff at golf courses, but they are really unnecessary. And I think like from a facility standpoint, Sandhills is the place that 
to me, it just, it always leaves an impact on me as to like, hey, you know, everything doesn't need to be five star. If you have the best golf course in the world, all, you know, one of the best golf courses in the world, all you want to do is, is get people out to play the golf course. Like, and the lodging doesn't have to be extraordinary. You're going to be exhausted after a day of playing golf. You know, they have good food. They have strong drinks. They have, you know, comfortable beds and an unbelievable golf course that's maintained for far, far less than, you know, most golf courses in his class. Yeah, and it's appropriate to to go there. If you're a modern architect, Sand Hills is kind of at the at the genesis of, you know, what we now know of as modern golf course architecture. This this new era of golf course architecture, Sand Hills is is kind of the course. Um so yeah, I agree with a lot of that. Uh you know, a lot of people would probably say the old course that's you know, a good one too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that that that's probably it's it, that has that has proven over time. The old course has its bona fides as a a schoolroom for golf course architects. That's where so many great golf course architects have gone to learn about the craft of golf course design from you know early twentieth century architects through to the present day. You know. Many, many golf course architects have learned their most important lessons from that course. But we are, you know, we're, we're Americans. We A lot of our coverage is kind of American-based. So, Well, if you think about those two that we picked out, they're roughly the two cheap, probably maybe the two cheapest courses to build of their era. Yeah, yeah. The, the two of the most natural courses. And the old course wasn't, I'm, I'm not even sure you could call it built, built. In, in a meaningful I know, way. That's why I say yeah. like, you know. Yeah. And so that, that's, that, yeah, it goes to show you, you, you don't need to do too much. The course that came honestly, to mind. Honestly, like so many courses, if they just did 70% less would be better places. Like that's the crazy thing to me just from my lens and this again this is you know as somebody who visits tons of places every year to me my general takeaway is well i could have done without that (laughs) more so than i really wish they had this like i find myself more often being like well that 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 was a little too much more than I really wish they had this. Like the only thing that I ever am like, I really wish, I really wish there was more water to drink on a golf course is really like what, what I find myself saying the most. <laughs> well, here's something that I find myself doing a lot at, at, at golf courses that, that maybe aren't architecturally the best. And, and I do play those courses and enjoy them because it's golf and it's all fun, but whatever. Sometimes if I, if I hit a ball way offline, and I'm kind of hunting off the golf course in whatever the natural area around the golf course is, sometimes I'll find myself enjoying myself more in that environment than I did in the environment of the golf course. And I'll think to myself that this course has been overbuilt or the agronomy is trying to do too much to separate it from its natural environment. And I think that's probably the biggest lesson that you can learn from Sandhills and the old course is that the the natural landscape is the most beautiful thing. It's the thing that we humans are sort of uh, genetically coded to respond well to. And so uh, try to keep that intact. Now, the course 
I'll just mention this quickly because it's not as good of an answer as Sand Hills or the old course. But the course that I would maybe send an architect to would be Old Town Club. I think that would be a, that would be a cool place to go to learn about golf course architecture because across the board, Old Town Club does everything well. It's beautifully routed. The greens are so interestingly designed. The restoration of that course by Corin Crenshaw is absolutely spot on. And it's not on the most extraordinary piece of land in the world. Now, it's a really good piece of golfing terrain. Like, it's it's fantastic, no doubt about it. But this is not built on, you know, the sand dunes of coastal Oregon. Uh, this is not on Lynx land. This is a fairly ordinary Parkland property that uh, Perry pretty, Maxwell... Pretty dramatic. This is a above average Parkland property, let's call it. I mean, that wild, Perry Maxwell wild built something be, beautiful. Wild Horse would be a great one. And Wild Horse was was probably my other thought because the ones that we've mentioned so far, I mean, aside from the old course, are, are private clubs. And so, you know, Wild Horse, very accessible um, and, and beautifully designed. I got one here from Ben Herms. This maybe is our last one. Is it wrong to judge classic courses against modern ones? Or I'm just going to tweak this a little bit or minimalist slash found courses against manufactured ones. Like, should they be judged different, judged differently because they're classic and modern or minimalist versus. So those are, those are two different subjects, but they're both interesting. Like, should they be, should we judge different types of courses against each other, you know, across generations uh, or, you know, styles? I think the short answer is is yes. You you can compare anything while also offering the caveats that this is what the course is trying to do. Um, okay, so we just talked about the wonders of natural golf courses, but what about Shadow Creek? Right? Is, is that course was that was the purpose of that course ever going to be to be a a, a tribute? What about Lido? a love note to the natural landscape or Lido, which was built on a marsh, right. And was, and was really created. So I, I think that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not wrong to compare shadow Creek to the old course at St. Andrews. Like you, you can do it. Like they're, they have, they're golf courses. They have enough in common so that you can compare them and talk about why you like one more than the other. But yeah, sure. You have to keep in mind what the course was trying to accomplish with what it was given. You can also ask the question of whether, you know, courses should be built on desert wasteland at all, whether uh, whether that's that's a, a good thing to do in the first place. Now, I'm, I'm not going to be able to stop anybody from building desert courses by just saying I disapprove, but I don't necessarily think that that was uh, golf as it's meant to be or, or golf as I prefer it. And I think that that's okay to say, that I, I just like the course that's built on a on a setting that's naturally suited to golf more than the course that was built on a setting that really rejects golf at every turn. I've kind of wandered off the subject. I I don't know. I think you can compare the courses. You just have to keep in mind what they're trying to do. Yeah. I have thoughts on this too, from the sense of, um, you know, the rankings, right? Everybody ranks courses. It's like, well, you know, the, the reality is like a course could be better, but I might want to play a different course more you know championship courses are great examples of this like i you know 
you go to so many clubs that have multiple courses and a championship course and a non-championship course and the non-championship course is more popular with its members than the championship course like they play the championship course when they bring guests out like so what's the better course what's the better course like is the better course the course that the members want to play more that you know what restaurants better the one that i want to eat at more like there's different types of restaurants right now like there's those once in a like once every once in a while restaurants that blow your socks off like with great food and everything but you're like i wouldn't want to do this regularly right and it's the same thing with golf courses there are courses that like really like you know blow your mind and and you're like god this is incredible but they're like taxing and and you're kind of like i don't think i would want to do this every day and then you have like the courses that you're like god i just wish i could play this every day i would die a happy person but like so which one's better right and this is the problem with rankings and saying this course is better than this course you know in a vacuum right there are different qualities to courses it's almost like superlatives right there are great everyday courses this is this is a club this is a place that i'd want to be a member at this is a public course that i'd want to play every day now this course is the most dramatic most spectacular course right and if i was going to play one place before i died i want to play that place right and the that's the thing is like that place against the place that is the best is the place i want to play every day i might play the place i want to play every day seven times a three over the spectacular one but if i had one round i'd play the other course so which one's better like this is the silly thing with the rankings the rankings are so that they cause such damage because the reality of the rankings is that they are they are centered around dramatic land and difficulty for the most part i think golf.com's done a good job of kind of getting away from that but especially golf digest is like if you don't have dramatic land or a really hard course good luck good luck and what's that do for the course without dramatic land then they try and make their course really hard in order to you know compel raiders to think that it is a good course this is the the disease of the rankings and the harm that so many rankings have done to golf architecture instead of golf courses thinking about how do we be the best course we can be and what our identity is they try and build their identity off what they're rated on which is just asinine you took that question a different direction than i was thinking of it i was thinking of it as like how would i determine my favorite course how would i compare one course to another or you know do that but you're thinking of it in terms of how do you determine which course is best and that process of trying to figure out which course is the best and getting a bunch of different people together and asking them to collectively come up with an idea of which course is best is always going to be a pretty silly process i totally agree with that and it happens to be a process that has become in institutionalized in the golf course industry and has had a pretty bad effect on what golf courses do. So I'm with you on that. But um, I think it's different to just talk about favorite courses because you can come up with your own idiosyncratic criteria and just make decisions based on that. You know, of, on this trip, 
we've played some some really great courses. But the one that I keep thinking about, the one that I really love is Cape Arundel. I also think that Essex County Club is, is one of the best courses I've ever played. But um, maybe my favorite on the trip was Cape Arundel. Probably, arguably the least, it's definitely probably the least spectacular land of the trip. The setting's idyllic. Right. Setting's great. Land, land is quiet. Yeah. And, and and I think that's the thing is like, that's a great everyday course. That's a course you would love to play every day because of a lot of things. And, and one of them being like, it's super easy to get around it. It's yeah. not like, it's not going to kill you. It's a course that's suited to me because I'm a golfer of pretty average abilities and uh, pretty average length off the tee. And it's 5,800 yards. And it really feels like a pleasure to play that course as opposed to hitting five wood into every green. And that is something that can't enter that, that kind of thinking can't enter into the discussion when you talk about best courses. And especially when you talk about best courses as rated by a group of people, you can't start talking about what your particular game is or what your particular preferences are. And so I think when you move from favorite to best, a lot of things happen and a lot of them aren't very good. All right. I think that's a good stopping point. We're right around an hour here. Yeah. So let's wrap up there. Thank you guys for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode was edited by the wonderful Meg Atkins. Uh, She does a great job with many, many things, including this podcast. As a quick reminder, sign up for the Fried Egg Newsletter. It is a wonderful uh, way to stay up to date with golf. I think with the off season here, uh, anybody listening to this now after this podcast, we're going to write a little bit more about golf course architecture, golf courses in that newsletter. So sign up, go to thefriedegg.com. There's a subscribe button right there. Click on that or enter your email. There's a bar, there's a button, there's all sorts of places there to sign up. Enter your email and you're in and you'll get that every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for free. So do that and thank you for sticking with us through another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. We will be back next week.